came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the last of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah may well be the moodiest prophet that you've heard of, and you have heard of him. Most likely, he's the kind of tough hombre character who barely ever cracked a smile. And if you did happen to be around back then and said to him in your most upbeat Ned Flanders way, hey, hi, Jonah, how's it going? Then you'd be lucky if he let you off with just a snarl. You see, I picture Jonah most of the time a bit like Roy Keane in the morning, on a bad morning. Apologies if you're not sure who I'm talking about. Maybe ask Jamie Taylor. Because you couldn't say the guy was a lightweight You know, the kind that's prone to pull out of a challenge? Or was he just a cowardly lion to try to run to Tarshish? I don't think so. When God said go and Jonah said no, it wasn't because like Moses, he lacked the speaking ability or feared the rough reception he would get in the city. Jonah's reluctance to go to Assyria's capital was very different from Moses' reluctance to go to Egypt's. And I personally find Jonah's mission command on the face of it terrifying. It would be like telling a lone Ukrainian soldier today to march into the center of Moscow without any weapons and instead only wearing a sandwich board with the words, in 40 days, you law are toast. How would that go down? And I'm not being sensationalistic or exaggerating Jonah's mission situation here either. 
Nineveh really was as hostile towards Israel as Russia is to Ukraine. As hostile to the Israelites, Jonah's people, as any city could be. And within about 50 or 60 years from this point in history, the Assyrians had basically cancelled the whole northern kingdom of Israel, which was never to recover again. So you could understand, couldn't you, if Jonah had been scared stiff of going to the city of Nineveh, if he had wanted to run for fear of being tortured or killed by Israel's sworn enemies. And yet we're told in chapter 4 that he really only feared their repentance because he hated them that much. He despised the Assyrian nation and only wanted to see them wiped out. The thing he really wanted was to see God raise Nineveh to the ground before his very eyes. And he had been afraid that whatever God told him to say would be so effective that God would turn the hearts of the Ninevites to believe the message and turn from their sins and avoid his judgment. The one thing that really terrified Jonah was that God would save Sin City. But God wasn't for letting Jonah off the hook that easily. He wasn't going to let him die. He had a plan for Jonah to work on his character and to patiently soften his heart. And God had a plan for Nineveh and one that involved using this hard-bitten, reluctant prophet's voice there. And so that meant Jonah was made to sleep with the fishies. Literally, that is, not metaphorically. And then he prayed with the fishies as well. Jonah reconnecting to God and yet still seeming to fall short of expressing a new willingness to obey God and go to Nineveh. But after three nights in his one-star Airbnb, he was ejected by its owner onto a beach or something like it. And so now smelling something less than delightful and looking just a tad worse for wear, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord.
So God said go, and this time Jonah didn't say no. However reluctant the state of his heart may have remained. As Paul says in Philippians 1, what then? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And so Jonah entered the great city of Nineveh. That is exceedingly great in size. Three days walk to cross it is a lot. But then Jonah's sermons, on the other hand, appear to be exceedingly brief, much briefer than this one will be, and already has been. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's just eight words in English and only five words in the Hebrew. But Sinclair Ferguson thinks this is a summary of the message rather than the whole of the message. God isn't even mentioned in the sentence and repent and be saved is barely hinted at either. but I think this is the bit that really stuck in the hearts of the Ninevites. Like hopefully there will be some sentence maybe that will stick with you after this message is over. Now I don't think in Jonah's fuller message, he gave them a personal, passionate plea to turn to Yahweh, the Lord. I don't think he gave them a list of the best Jewish podcasts to listen to to learn more of God's love and grace towards sinners. But he gave them just enough. The minimum, I imagine to turn to the one true God for forgiveness and pardon. And the fact that the Ninevites didn't shrug it off as if something they could do nothing to avert in 40 days, even if this happened to be true, suggests that the message was a bit fuller that Jonah proclaimed there. And it's worth noting uh, that in verse 5 there, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. It didn't say they believed Jonah. Suggesting again that he delivered a slightly more rounded message on repentance if they would believe in God. But whether the message was long or short, what ultimately matters is that it was God's message. The message of God is effective and powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The message of the entire Bible takes about 80 hours to listen to or read aloud. 
but it could be just one verse or one gospel-infused sentence that God uses to save someone from judgment and into his embrace. We must preach the whole counsel of God, not just the warm and fuzzy bits. And yet the tough parts should not be taught in an abrasive or graceless way either. And we need to be careful not to confuse the law of God and the gospel of God. Because God's commands run right throughout the Bible. And at the same time, the good news that these commands are actually fulfilled for us as a gift flow right throughout the Bible. And so both must be taught if we're being faithful to the Bible's message. Because God graciously causes our hearts to fear his judgment through the message of his moral law. And then he graciously relieves that fear in his love through the proclamation of the gospel. Are you a reluctant prophet, as it were? A reluctant sharer of the gospel? We all fall short, don't we? Perhaps you have a great willingness, but don't feel that you've got the marketing skills to share it well enough. We all feel inadequate, or at least we should. Because if you think you're so adequate, the gospel-sharing example to the world, then pride comes before a fall. But if your attitude is, I'm not slick, I am weak, and I need God to come down, as it were, and speak through me, or nothing I say will be significant or effective, then, then there's hope. And God is delighted to use our humility with that dependence on divine grace. Enthusiasm for Christ is a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong. I love to see our students' bright enthusiasm in their sharing of the gospel. And as long as that's coming from a heart that says, without you, I can do nothing. I need you, Lord, every minute of every day to walk with me and to talk through me. Then you go on doing what you're doing. Dear sister, brother, But for those who would love to possess more of that enthusiasm, but feel burned out, broken, weary, don't feel guilty. You're not a failure. 
God loves you dearly and just calls you to hang on to him. Your position of acceptance before him isn't dependent on your performance. It's dependent on whom you trust, on whom you cling to, and not your inherent willingness to be a sunbeam for Jesus. Now, I've only seen some of the film Sin City. But it wasn't something I wanted to watch right through. Because I got the idea pretty quick. That fictional city is a very wicked city. A very violent city. And a close match, I think, to the hearts of darkness in Nineveh at this time. The sin of Nineveh had stunk out God's nostrils, as it were. And even the king of Nineveh, the king of Assyria, that is, recognizes that in verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. But really, isn't it just incredible that Nineveh stopped and listened to a foreign prophet and didn't attack him, didn't laugh him to scorn? Verse 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. When you think about it, Jonah 3 verse 5 is one of the most staggering verses in the Bible. Every single one of them believed God. And they organized a fast and put on sackcloth. And then the message reached the king and he too put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and he organized a total city-wide fast. Even the animals are to fast. And he oversees this united crying out to God. Verse 8. Let them call out mightily to God. And 120,000 people cry out to Jonah's God. This is one of the greatest revivals ever. God sent revival to this city, this sinful city, in 1843, through the preaching of William Burns, where he first began to witness the great work of the Spirit. This is how he described the experience as 1,400 people listened. I felt my own soul moved in a manner so remarkable, 
but I was led to plead with the unconverted before me, instantly to close with God's offer of mercy, and continued to do so until the power of the Lord's Spirit became so mighty upon their souls as to carry all before it like the rushing mighty wind of Pentecost. Suddenly, as God's Spirit moved in their midst, many broke forth simultaneously in weeping and wailing, tears and groans, intermingled with shouts of joy and praise from some of the people of God. Some were screaming out in agony. Others, and among these strong men, fell to the ground as if they had been dead. And such was the general commotion that after repeating for some time the most free and urgent invitations of the Lord to sinners, I was obliged to give out a psalm, which was soon joined by a considerable number, our voices being mingled with the mourning groans of many prisoners sighing for deliverance. And that morning service lasted for five hours. <laughs> and then services were held nightly, often with crowds over 4,000 assembling. And this level of fervor continued for weeks. Now, this fervor didn't continue down the generations, as you can see. These revivals don't last that long. But we can't ever underestimate what God can do. And what God loves to do. What he has done in the past saving people in their droves in Nineveh, in Dundee, and many other places. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus said in John 3. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And when the Spirit wishes to save large numbers of people at one time, then the scenes are just miraculous beyond comprehension. Who knows, the king of Nineveh had said in verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And boy, did he ever turn and relent. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And this is what Jonah had suspected all along would happen. Chapter 4, verse 2. That God is merciful 
slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And as Hugh Martin points out, it was a wicked, violent, unrighteous, proud Nineveh which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement and appealing as lowly suppliants to his commiseration. A Nineveh like that, that Nineveh, he had never threatened. That Nineveh, he visited not with ruin. He had never said he would. God granted to these Ninevites this amazing repentance so that he could turn from his fierce anger and demonstrate his great love. Because God grants every part of our salvation so that none can boast in any part of it. And Paul clarifies that even our repentance is a gift when he says in 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And just in case you thought that the Ninevites weren't granted a repentance that led to that knowledge of the truth, then listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The scribes and Pharisees there whom Jesus was addressing were being given a summons to repentance. Just like Jonah had summoned the Ninevites to repentance. And so Jesus is making a direct contrast between the Ninevites' repentance and the Jews' refusal to repent in the context of their eternal salvation, their eternal pardon. That's the comparison. You see, the contrast is this, that the Gentile outsiders repented on very little and the Jewish insiders did not. Even when a prophet greater than Jonah, and there's an understatement, even when God himself summoned them to. Now many of you will remember Dominic Smart, our late brother, preacher, theologian, friend. And in his exposition of Matthew 12, 41, he highlighted Jesus' words there 
that this generation of Ninevites will rise up or stand up at the judgment and therefore not crushed at the judgment. But they will stand up in heaven and condemn that particular generation of Jews alongside Jesus. And those Jews sadly will be crushed. And so I respectfully disagree with anyone who thinks that these Ninevites only superficially repented. That they were merely granted a stay of execution by God. And in the end, were damned. However, it's clear also that these Ninevites' true repentance didn't last much beyond a generation. The revival didn't last that long. Just like the famous Scottish revivals and Welsh revivals, the following generations mostly stopped believing. And so the subsequent generations of Ninevites went back to their polytheistic worship and stopped believing in the one true God. The following generations went back to wicked ways. And so within a century, we see that the prophet Nahum was not sent by God to save the city of Nineveh this time. And Nahum instead proclaimed woe to the bloody city in Nahum 3.1, all full of lies and plunder. Nineveh lies in ruins. And so in the end, Assyria fell and God judged Sin City because God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. He has mercy on whom he has mercy and he chose not to bestow mercy on Nahum's wicked generation of Ninevites and gave them justice. But not before saving a whole previous generation from everlasting destruction from Jonah's. And so you see these Ninevites repenting is a far bigger miracle than Jonah surviving three nights inside a fish. Some think it was a whale. Some think it was a shark. But as someone once said, the fish that swallowed Jonah was probably a red herring. Since it's such a distraction from being the main point of the book. God didn't have to suffer to send a fish to save Jonah. But saving the Ninevites was far more costly to God. Jesus had to suffer for the Ninevites in order that they could repent and be forgiven. Christ was not a reluctant prophet. He was not a reluctant savior. 
He was the most willing prophet there's ever been. He came to preach law and gospel and to fulfill the law, the law we could never fulfill. And he was the most willing sufferer there's ever been. When the time was right for him to save sinners from the consequences of their sins, he set his face resolutely for the city. Jesus saved the city of Nineveh by going outside the city of Jerusalem. He suffered at the place of the skull. He took the Ninevites' blame. He bore the Ninevites' wrath outside the city on the cross. And he also took our blame and bore our wrath in order to bring us to repentance and faith. Because lest we forget, there's a little sin city inside all of us. I was born with a Ninevite heart, as it were. And so were you. But one greater than Jonah came and conquered our Ninevite hearts of stone and made them alive by his spirit. He made them new. Our prophet, priest, and king granted us repentance and caused us to believe that his sacrifice makes all things possible, including en masse revivals. We would love to see more of them. And we can pray for those. But we don't despise the day of small things either. Every soul is precious. And we rejoice at everyone who trickles into Christ's kingdom, into the church. Every time the good shepherd leaves the 90 and 9 and comes back into the fellowship carrying one more lost sheep. Christ is able to gather in his sheep without our help. And yet mysteriously, he loves to use inherently weak people like you and me in his mission. And God didn't give up on Jonah, as you've seen up till now. And we will see more in chapter 4. He never gave up, gave up on that incredibly thrown prophet of his. And there's a good Scots word. 
Jonah behaved a lot of the time like a thrawn child. But God loved him and saved him and disciplined him and recommissioned him and stuck by him. And God won't give up on you either, believer. No matter what you've done to let him down. Is he, God, is he not the God of second chances? Meaning the God of thousands of chances, right? He is so patient with us. If through our weakness we sin a thousand times each day, wrote William Tyndale, yet if we repent again, we always have God's mercy laid up for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful to complete the work he began in you. And your hearts will be sinless cities on the day of Christ Jesus. Goodness and mercy have followed us all our days, just like Psalm 23 said they would. And they will continue to follow us all the rest of our days. And so you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, in that heavenly city. Alongside a once reluctant but redeemed prophet and have some really great chats with many thousands of repentant ex-pagans. Let's pray to God, shall we?